Hello friends, welcome to the Hillside Church podcast. My name is Brad and I serve Hillside Church as the lead pastor. We're so glad to be able to share God's word with you in this way. God has so much in store for you and for your life. And one of the ways God works in our lives is through the study of his word, like the message you're about to hear. Our prayer for you is that as you share in this message, if it's me preaching or if it's someone else, is that God's word would minister to your heart and life in a most powerful way. Thanks again for being part of our church family. God bless you. But if you'd like to follow along with where we're going to be in Scripture today, you can turn to uh, Matthew chapter 28. Um, That's where we're going to be looking at inside Scripture today. But before we do that, before we dive into the text, um, I want to talk to you about something important that's taking place in my life. And no, this isn't another subtle plug to get me to help or to get you to help me to move at the end of the month. That's not what this is, I promise. But if you are available on the weekend of the 29th or the 30th and you've got nothing else to do, I do have something that you could help with. But that's not what I'm talking about. Something big that's taking place inside my life is that baseball is back. I love baseball. Baseball is one of my favorite sports to watch. It's one of my favorite sports to play. Me and my son Theo, we play baseball in the backyard at our, at our house all the time. If, you don't, if you've never been to our house, behind our house there's a big green space so he can hit a home run over the fence, but there's nothing on the other side of the fence so we're safe. But I love baseball. But there's one specific moment in baseball that is incredibly iconic that I want to mention today, and that's from the 1932 World Series. In the 1932 World Series was the Chicago Cubs versus the New York Yankees. And it centers around a man you may have heard of, or maybe not, a man named Babe Ruth. Um, The Great Bambino, if you watch The Sandlot, um, you know, the the Great Bambino. And, And it's one of the most, Babe Ruth, one of the most iconic sports names ever. But in 1932, it was game three of the World Series. The New York Yankees, they'd won the first two games in New York already. So they were up 2-0 in the series. But if you follow sports, you know, after the first two games, they would travel to the other team's stadium. So this is the first game that they're playing in Chicago in Wrigley Field. And the Chicago fans are relentless. When it comes to Babe Ruth, they are are swearing at him, they're cussing at him, they're heckling him, they're jeering him. They are are just giving it to him constantly. The story goes that even his wife had come to watch the Yankees play in Chicago and that she had been spit on and that that they they, they had found out who she was and that's Babe Ruth's wife and, and they took it out on her. The Chicago fans were relentless. And into this relentless environment, in the fifth inning, Babe Ruth comes up to bat. And the game, the game is tied 4-4. And the fans, as he steps up to the plate, are just relentless, just screaming at him from the stands. And then even the Chicago Cubs players, if, you, if you're into sports, normally the other team doesn't get quite so vocal and so adamant. But the, even the Chicago Cubs players were, were starting to come out. They were getting caught up in the atmosphere. And they were started to come out out of the dugout and were just screaming at Babe Ruth. There's a man named Charlie Root is pitching for the, for the Chicago Cubs. And there's this moment that takes place in the series as, as Babe Ruth steps up to bat in the fifth inning and, and the, the crowd is just raining down 
anger and vitriol and just screaming at him. It's loud. It's hostile. And it's really tough. And Root, the pitcher, he throws his first pitch, and it's a strike. And he throws the second pitch, and it's a strike. And if you know baseball, if, you, if you're familiar with, with phrases that might sound familiar, three strikes and you're out. And so he's got two strikes against him. And then there's this moment where as the crowd is just screaming at him, the crowd is just relentless at him, where Babe Ruth steps up to bat, and he points to the outfield fence, points to a flag, a flag. You can see the highlights of the play behind me. That's why, why we're showing this. But he points to this American flag that's out in the outfield. It's about 490 feet away. And he takes his bat and he points to the flag and then sets himself. And Charlie Root, the pitcher, he throws a curveball. But it doesn't curve the way that it's supposed to. And Babe Ruth takes a big swing and he smashes the ball exactly where he pointed. It's this famous moment where he calls his shot, where as everyone is yelling and screaming at him and telling him how terrible he is and they're spitting on his wife and all of these things, he, he into that moment says, this is what I'm going to do right here, right now. You see that flag? I'm going to hit the ball from here to there. He calls his shot, and he crushes the pitch. It's over 450 feet. And then as he rounds the bases, he, as, as the crowd just falls silent, he begins to taunt them back and taunt the Chicago, Chicago Cubs bench back. And there's this incredible moment where Babe Ruth calls his shot. The Yankees would go on to win that game. Actually, the very next pitch that he throws after that pitch to Babe Ruth is another home run to another person you may have, may have heard of, uh, Joe DiMaggio. And he hits a home run, and that's Charlie Root's last pitch of the game. The Yankees would go on to win that game, and then they would go on to win the World Series next day, the next day. It's one of the most iconic moments in all of sports where Babe Ruth calls his shot to step up in front of everyone and say, this Right here, this is what I'm about to do. This is what is going to happen. And then actually doing it. And at Easter today, we recognize that as amazing as Babe's, Babe Ruth's moment of calling his shot was, today we, we celebrate the most incredible moment where someone proclaimed, this is what is going to happen. And then seeing it happen. This is what's going to take place. And then seeing it take place. We're gonna, before we get to the book of Matthew, I'm going to take a look at a couple places in Mark. Um, there's three moments in back-to-back-to-back chapters. We're almost in the same verse in all three chapters. Jesus lays out for his, his followers, for his disciples, and everyone who hears him exactly what's going to take place. In Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, and Mark chapter 10. Jesus calls his shot. He lays out for everyone, this is exactly what's going to take place. He, he pointed to the tomb. He pointed to the cross. And he pointed to even what would come after that. 
and he told people, this is what's going to happen. Jesus calls his shot. In Mark chapter, chapter 8, verse 31, he says, he then began, that he is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days he would rise again. Then if you jump exactly one chapter forward to Mark chapter 9, verse 31, exactly one chapter ahead, it says he was teaching, again, he being Jesus, teaching his disciples, and he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. Jesus, or and then if we jump ahead one more chapter to the next page, Mark chapter 30, except not exactly one chapter, two more verses. Mark chapter 10, verse 33. It says, we, this Jesus talking to his disciples, we are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Jesus calls his shot. He says, this is exactly what's going to happen. Friends, disciples, whatever he would call them, he'd say, guys, I need to gather you together and tell you this is what's going to happen. This is exactly what's going to take place. Now, of course, for the disciples, this is difficult to process. This is their friend. This is their mentor. This is the person they see as the Messiah. And so they have trouble processing this and understanding it. If we go back to Mark chapter 8 and we read the next verse, verse 32, we see what's going on with the disciples because he says, he being Jesus again spoke plainly about these things. And Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. As Jesus says, I'm going to die. I'm going to go through all this. I'm going to... Peter pulls him aside and says, Jesus... Don't talk like that. Don't. And he begins to rebuke him. And if we jump ahead again to Mark chapter 9, verse 32, it will say, but they, the disciples, they didn't understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. And so we've got Jesus saying, this is everything that's going to happen. This is what's going to take place. As we journey to Jerusalem, here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to be aware of. These are the things that are going to take place when we get there. But we also see the disciples saying, I, I don't quite understand what he means. Even though it'll say he spoke plainly, they, they, it must be a metaphor. It must be a story that he's telling, but, but it, I wonder what it means. I wonder what it means. And they don't, they don't get it. But as the story of, of Jesus and the, as, and the cross unfolds, from where we sit now, we can have a frustration with the disciples. Because we, we read, we see, Jesus told you everything that was going to happen. These are all the things that are going to take place. And, and as much as he called his shot, as much as he said, these are all the things we're going to do, we see the struggle that the disciples had in, in fully understanding what Jesus said was going to happen, even as it's happening. As they betrayed Jesus, as they denied Jesus, as they abandoned Jesus, as they doubted Jesus. And we can think to ourselves, man, how could you not get it? 
He told you this is a, he said, I'm going to, I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be taken captive. I'm going to be brought into and, and face trials. And I'm going to, and then as it's happening, the disciples all start freaking out. And I don't know what's going on. Jesus told you what was going to happen. But here, here's what we need to remember in this. It's one thing to learn something. It's another thing to live it out. It's one thing to read your learner's manual on how to drive a car. You could read your learner's manual. You could study it. You could know it inside and out. You can ace your test. You could, you could be perfect in your understanding of how to drive a car. But the first time you got actually behind the wheel was one thing to learn something. It's another thing to get out and do it. It's one thing to take a CPR class. It's one thing to take this class where they teach you how to perform CPR on someone. It's a different thing when it's, it's not a, a plastic dummy. It's a different thing when the person is, is actually choking and actually needs CPR and you have to be the one to do it and suddenly you can't quite remember how staying alive goes anymore and you're like trying to, and you have this moment where it's, a, it's one thing to know how to do this but it's another thing to be like, I'll call 911 because I don't know how to actually do this. It's one thing to read books about childbirth. It's one thing to go to a birthing class, to be told, this is how this is going to go. It's a whole other thing when the baby's born. And you're saying to your wife, you know, honey, honey, remember breathing. <laughs> Don't tell me how to breathe. Okay, breathe however you want. That it's one thing to go to a course where they're saying, this is how you do it. It's another thing when you actually have to do it. It's one thing to learn something. It's another thing to live out what you've learned. Jesus tries to, to prepare his disciples. He, he talked to them. He was, it, it wasn't parables. It wasn't riddles. It wasn't something that they needed to figure out. He, it's, we read, he spoke to them plainly. This is what's going to happen when we get to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be beaten. Some of you are going to deny me. I'm going to die. But, but don't worry. Even after I've died, don't worry. Because on the third day, I'm going to come back. So even when you feel like all hope is lost, on the third day, it's going to be okay. But it was one thing for the disciples to know that. It was one thing for, for Jesus to call his shot. But it was another thing to take that knowledge and really live it out, to trust it, to believe it, that that ball was going to go where that bat was pointed. That as Jesus was hauled off to be arrested, that as they watched him go through all of these things, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. As they watched everything that they believed and seemingly start to fall apart, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. But they, be they betrayed, they denied, and Jesus dies. But it's not like 
They gather together and say, okay, guys, this is going exactly according to plan. So we got three days. Jesus died, and then he said, in three days, he's coming back. We're good. Let's, let's just wait for the three days, and we'll see what happens. No, that's, that's not what happens. It's too much for them. They, they scattered. Then we come to Matthew chapter 28. And we see that on the third day after Jesus has died, we see that, that Mary and another woman named Mary come to the tomb of Jesus. And their plan is to essentially properly bury Jesus. That Jesus' death on the cross didn't afford him a proper burial. That, that in the moment, people did the best they could, but, but there was this, that Jesus died and they couldn't bury him the way they were supposed to. And then there was this awkward day of the Sabbath where they couldn't do anything. And so they come with their spices and they come prepared to, to, to sort of redo or, or make things right the way they should be. They wanted to make sure that this man that they had followed and given their lives to for the last few years got, got something closer to a proper Jewish burial. And it's, it's a funny thought because you can kind of see the process and the difficulty that can exist inside of grief. Because we read that these two women are coming to the tomb. We also know there's a big giant rock in front of the tomb. And so we don't know what their plan was to move that rock. Or if just in their grief, they looked for something that they could do. And they didn't necessarily think it all the way through that when we get there, oh, we'll just push the big giant rock out of the way. But they, they show up to the tomb and something is amiss. The rock that had been placed in front of the tomb is like a giant security system had been moved. In Matthew chapter 28, we read, there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. They, they, they passed out. And then in verse 5, the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. This is a true fact. The, these women were there. As we, as we talk about how all the disciples fled, what we don't read about is the women flee, fleeing. We, we see all of Jesus' disciples, all the men take off, but the women are with him all the way through. And we read about how these women were there at the cross. They saw Jesus crucified. They heard his cries of pain. They heard his last words. They heard him cry out, it is finished. These women watched it. They saw him breathe his last. You are here to looking for Jesus who was crucified. You know this. You were there. But the angel continues. Verse 6 doesn't say up there, but it says, he is not here. He has risen. Just as he said. If there's ever a place for an amen. amen. He is not here. He is just as he said. Remember, we read that in 1 Corinthians earlier. Just as the scripture said. Just remember, Jesus called his shot. And now you're here looking for the ball that's been hit to the flagpole. 
Remember, Jesus said, remember, this is, it's the third day, remember? Jesus called his shot. The guy who you're looking for, he's no longer here. And he says, see, you can see the place where he was laying. You can look for the proof. You can see he's not here just as he told you. It's one thing to know how to drive. It's another thing to drive. Now, the angel speaks these things to these two women named Mary. But the disciples... They're nowhere to be found. They're out. They're gone. Sayonara, see you later, see you around. They were freaked out by the moment. They were crumbled in the moment. As all of these things began to unfold, they, they couldn't make it through, even though they knew. As Jesus lays out for his followers, what's going to happen? What do the disciples do? Judas... He betrays Jesus for some silver. And in his shame, he ends up taking his own life. Peter, he denies that he knows Jesus to all, even to a servant girl. And in his shame, he goes back to his old life. All of the disciples, they fled. All of them ran away. Sometimes we give, we give Peter the hardest ride because we get this picture into his denial. But Peter actually stuck around longer than the other guys did. Everybody else takes off in the garden. And we read that Peter, he, follow, he followed at a distance. But he actually sticks around a little longer than everybody else. Now, unfortunately, he sticks around a little bit longer only to deny Jesus. But at least he was there. Thomas, he doubts until he can see some physical proof. And Nathaniel, James, and John, they all go back to fishing with Peter. And so we have this group of doubting, denying, abandoning guys all lost because Jesus is dead. The reason why we want to come to, to this point right now is because in what we're is because of what we're about to see in the resurrection of Jesus. And that's if you've ever doubted Jesus, if you've ever been confused by Jesus, if you've ever denied Jesus, if you've ever turned your back on Jesus, if you've ever said no more to Jesus, if like the disciples or like Peter and Nathaniel and James and John, if you ever decided to put career ahead of Jesus, if you've ever decided to walk the other way away from Jesus, you're in the company of these men at this moment in time. But if that's part of your story, if that's part of who you are, you are just like the disciples at this very moment. And that's great news for all of us today. Because this is the story, or this story is about a cross. It's about Jesus' death. It's about an empty tomb. It's about forgiveness. The story we're telling today is the story of grace. It's the story of hope. It's the story of a life forgiven. It's about the greatness of the action of Jesus and the supremacy of the action of Jesus over the combined actions of our lives. 
no matter the sin, no matter the walking away, no matter the denial, no matter the doubt, no matter the confusion, the action of Jesus is always greater than the actions of our lives. And we see this at the end of Matthew chapter 28. See, as, as the angel is wrapping up his time with, with the women at, at the grave, she, she tells them, go back and tell the disciples that they need to go to Galilee. Because Jesus told them he was going to meet them there. So, so they got to get going because Jesus is actually already on the way. So you need to go find them and get them and go to the place where Jesus said he was going to meet you. And so if we jump all the way down to verse 16, we read, Then the eleven disciples, Judas is, is no longer with them. The eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Now, if you, if you look at the, the account of this story in Mark, we discover that they're gathered around a table. That they're sitting together at a table, and, and, and that, that's the, the moment that we see them in. Probably uneasy, probably unsure of what on earth is going on, and what on earth are we even doing here? What are we expecting? What, is, what are we doing right now? We're gathered together here because we think Jesus has come back to life. People don't come back to life. And there's this uneasiness of, but what if he does? What, what does that mean for us? And they knew, or and then the thing that maybe they knew was going to happen, the thing that maybe they wanted to have happen, the thing that maybe they were a little afraid was going to happen, happens. And Jesus shows up. In verse 17, it tells us this. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Jesus shows up and some of the disciples just immediately, is, oh my goodness, Jesus. And they begin to worship Jesus. But then we read that, that some doubted. Now, the word here doesn't necessarily mean doubt in the sense of like, they're not quite sure they believe what's taking place right now. That, that Jesus has shown up and they're saying, well, not quite sure he's there. That's, that's not really what that, that word would mean. The, the doubt there is doubt in the, the, the hesitancy to actually worship Jesus. That they, they doubted their ability to worship the way that the others worshipped. That some began to worship Jesus and others went, I, I'm not so sure I want to do that. I'm not so sure that, that I want to I do that. Probably because they were fairly uncertain as to how Jesus was going to respond to that. That if you're Peter... And a few days ago, Jesus said, tonight you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And you swore up and down, I, I would never do that. And then you did. You don't see Jesus again until after that. And now here he is. If I come to Jesus and, wow, Jesus, it's so great to see. What is he going to do to me? You know, as the, the, some of the disciples are just overcome in the moment, but some of the disciples, the legacy of what's taken place over the last couple of days rings really true in their hearts. Remember, pretty much every person in this room after the death of Jesus, everybody's life had taken a hard, hard left turn. 
denials, rejections. The last time any of these men saw Jesus was when they abandoned him in the garden while Jesus was getting arrested. And now Jesus is back. How's he going to feel about me? And some fall down in worship and some hang back because they're not quite so sure how their worship is going to be received. But then we see this incredible moment. Remember this This is a story about grace. And we see Jesus step up to all of the disciples, even the ones who are unsure about how to respond to the presence of Jesus. We read this in verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, you bunch of morons. You screwed this up more than even I thought was possible. What are we to know? Jesus comes to them and says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so I am going to wreak a punishment on you like you have never imagined. I have all of heaven and earth at my disposal, and you're about to get all of it. No. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And now think about all that we've talked about with the disciples, everything that's taken place in the last 72 hours. And this is what Jesus says to them. And surely I am with you, Always. To the deniers, to the rejecters, to the doubters, to the abandoners, I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is a moment where Jesus could have ripped these guys apart. I told you this was going to happen. How could you have been this stupid? How could you have so little belief? How could you mess it up this bad? You've only had a couple of days, and look at how everything has fallen apart. This could have been history's biggest moment of, I told you so. But instead, Jesus steps up to these men, and he doesn't condemn them. He steps up to them and begins to speak to them about their future. Their future in Jesus. The relationship that they have with Jesus and their relationship moving forward from here. And he says, I will always be with you. He says, I will always forgive you. I will always believe in you. I will always have grace for you. I will always give you mercy. I will always care for you. I will always be with you. Jesus is proclaiming in this moment his love for you. That's greater than any sin, any moment that we could ever have. His grace is for you, and he is with you. And he says, now that I've forgiven you, now that I've restored you, now go and tell everyone else about my love. Just as you're receiving my love and my forgiveness right now, go tell everyone else about it. Go into the whole world and tell them. Let the whole world know about this thing called grace. Our story today 
was all about the story of grace. And I want to close off our time today with three really quick things, and I do mean really quick things. Just now getting to his points, it's okay, they're very short. Um, but we're, three things that you need to know about this grace that Jesus shows the disciples here that he has for you today. The first thing that you need to know is that grace isn't fair. Grace isn't about fairness. Grace isn't about earning it. We don't get grace because we earned it. We don't get grace because we deserved it. Betrayal, denial, turning their backs on Jesus. If someone had done to us what the disciples did to Jesus, we would have no problem writing them off. We, we would have no problem justifying. The people around us would be like, you're good to do that. You need to have boundaries. You, you need to, to do that. You, that. That's the right thing to do. And I'm not saying don't have boundaries. But what we see here is that grace extends to people that we rightfully should write off. But Jesus has grace for them. Not Jesus. He shows up and steps up to these men that don't know how to step up to Jesus and forgives them and moves forward with them and says, I love you. Grace isn't fair. It's not about fairness. But do you know what grace is? Grace is for everyone. It's for everyone. It's for every action. It's for every moment. It's for every thought. And as you're sitting here listening to this, you may be thinking to yourself, but I don't think it's for me. You don't know the stuff that I would need grace for. It's easy to talk about it in the theoretical, but my life, there's not enough grace for this. It's for you. Maybe you're kind of uncertain, like the disciples at the back of the room, unsure that if you were to, to step up to Jesus, if you were to, to step towards Jesus, and I don't know how he's going to receive this. If I take a step forward towards Jesus, is he going to laugh at me? Is, is he going to say, get out of you? Go clean yourself up, come back, and then we'll talk. How is Jesus going to respond if he sees me? Well, he have grace for me, friends. Grace is for everyone. And you, you're everyone. Grace is for you. And the third thing about grace, told you the points were quick. Grace is an invitation. Grace is the greatest invitation ever. It's an invitation for you to be in relationship with the risen Savior who loves you, even when you don't know how to love yourself. When you're confused, when you've denied, when you've walked away, grace is an invitation to relationship. I've read the words in red. How you Thanks again for being a part of this message from Hillside Church. We pray that God was able to speak to you through what was shared. We're so grateful to be able to share God's word with our church community and family, and that includes you. 
And we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Hillside Airdrie. You can contact us through email at info at hillsideairdrie.ca. Or you can go to hillsideairdrie.ca and click on contact us from the main menu. Or you can find our pastoral team contact by clicking on our pastors from the Our Church drop-down menu. Our vision for everyone that shares in Hillside Church is that they would know God, know his hope, know his purpose, and know his power in their lives. And we pray this message ministered to you. At Hillside Church, we're a family not by blood, but a family that's been bought by blood. As family we go. Who am I that the God of all grace wipes the tears from my face and says, come as you are. You paid the price. You took the cross. You gave your life. And you Sorrows erased And when I stand before you I 